With that, then turn to Luke chapter 9 and verse 10, and I will read down to verse 17. Please give your attention once again to the reading of the holy, inspired, and infallible word of our God. And the apostles, when they were returned, took him all that they had done, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. And he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in, the de- in a desert place. But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they said, We have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. And they were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Make them sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and brake and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they did eat and were all filled, and there was taken up of fragments that remained to them twelve baskets." Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O gracious and glorious God, we come to see the works of the Lord once again. And we ask that you would cause your minister to preach well. In so many ways, your ministers feel very much like the original 12 disciples who survey uh, the multitudes, the people of God. We look, O God, as you know, on a few verses And we say, can this really fill the people? And if it were not for you, if it were not for Jesus working, Father, clearly we could not. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would enable your minister to feed the people of God. You have told your servant, feed my lambs. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit would enable the minister to feed the lambs on the the word of God. And that the people of God would have their hearts opened to perceive Jesus Christ, filling them as the bread of life. And so, Father, we pray that Christ would be magnified now in the preaching of the word, that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, today we do come to the feeding of the 5,000. Even unbelievers know this miracle quite well. Many of them will be able to cite that Jesus fed 5,000 with very meager rations that he was able to multiply loaves and fish. And it's worth for our consideration knowing that this, boys and girls, other than the resurrection, is the only miracle attested to in all four Gospels. And so clearly there's something important here that every gospel writer wants you to understand of the Lord's work. And the reason for that is is that it is a very significant revelation of who Christ is and what he is for his people. What he is for his people. And the irony is that our flesh often completely glosses over it. In fact, we have the same problem with reading this text that the first a group of people who received the bread did as well. That they don't perceive the deeper meaning of Christ feeding the multitudes. And we must not make that same mistake. In fact, it's very plain when you look through the gospel accounts what Christ is intending to teach. 
And yet we miss the lesson completely. Which is that the miracle of the bread filling the bellies of thousands is meant to point us to the filling of a multitude that no man can number. The elect of God with Jesus as the bread of life who gives us eternal life, who gives to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness their fill and to the uttermost, even as we feed on him by faith. That's ultimately where Jesus is going with this, though we miss it. And so that we would not miss that great theme. Our theme is Christ, the bread of life, completely fills the soul which hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Christ as the bread of life completely fills the soul that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so if you've come hungry today, he will fill you. So we consider that under three heads. First is Christ's compassion. We can't move past that. Second is Christ's means by which he fills. And third, the completeness of Christ's filling. So first, Christ's compassion. Let's uh, regain our footing again. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Luke. Let's grab our context once again. You remember just prior to our text, Jesus had sent out his 12 apostles into the, the earth, into the cities. Uh, their first mission to preach the gospel, to preach, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He sent them out two by two. But then after John the Baptist's death, he recalled them to himself. Now their labor, I don't think we appreciate this. You know, Christ was laboring. We mentioned that last time, but they were laboring very intensely And Mark recalls this, that they had no leisure so much as to eat. You know, often our labors for the Lord are kind of like that, aren't they? That um, we are so engrossed in the work that we don't even have time to eat. We don't have time for rest. And I guess the question is, do you know if the Lord cares about that or not? He certainly cares, beloved. He cares on that. That's why last time you saw, he said, come aside with me to a desert place around the city of Bethsaida and rest. Surely you begin here by understanding the Lord's compassion for his disciples in that, don't you? And that you might even give greater glory to God. Perhaps more astonishing than that is to remember that Jesus tired himself, right? That in his humanity, the divine son of God has tasted the weakness of our humanity. Weakness, hunger, thirst, even death. He has experienced it all, beloved. In the last chapter, we forget it so soon and the disciples will too. You remember that he slept on a boat because he was weary from his labors. In John 4 verse 6, when he meets the Samaritan woman, what, why do we read that he was sitting at the well? Because he was wearied. He was wearied. The text is very plain. The Bible doesn't shy away from it, but wants you to know that. That our Lord Jesus was weary. You need to never forget it, beloved, or your perception of Jesus Christ will be totally askew. And you will forget that he has compassion. Because he has a nature like yours. And he has experienced the weakness of our flesh as well, yet without the sin nature. He knows our troubles in our fallen world. And you can't forget that. Or else you will not turn to him when you need him the most. You need to say, oh my soul, I must remember how compassionate the Lord is because he has even known my troubles intimately. He has known weariness. He has known a lack of sleep. He has known laboring uh, with no leisure. 
He understands what it is to tire the God of heaven. Incredible. Well, that said, as the fame of Christ and his disciples had increased, right? The people saw them go away, right? They, they had had this tremendous preaching and healing ministry. But now the people saw that the 12 and Christ go away and they rush out. They rush behind them to meet them. Mark 6.33, this is Mark's account. And the people saw them departing and many knew him. And listen to this. And ran afoot thither out of all cities and out went them and came together unto him. Do you see what they're doing when they see Jesus? Go someplace. They're running. They're running to meet with the Lord. And oh, that we would have such an urgency, friends, to come and meet with the Lord. Wherever he goes, I will run. And isn't it interesting? Uh, Mark says, they outwent them. They overtook them, right? They even overtook his disciples, his ministers to meet with him. Now, this isn't perhaps a direct application, but I come to the church building around 9 a.m. And I often delight in this, that there are many brothers here already who have overtaken me. And they're already here. They have a love for the Lord and the things of God, and they are eager. They are eager to meet with him. You know, the heart of the believer, right? What does it do? It says, show me thy glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is the thing that they are longing for and they want to meet with Christ and they will run to follow him wherever he is, to meet him wherever he is. They run to where Christ is found, not this physical place, mind you. This is just a venue for the Lord to meet us in. Right? This, this place means nothing in a sense. We could be meeting out in the field and the same Lord is there. But we go wherever we know the Lord will be found in his ordinances and where his name is called upon by the elders and by the people of God. And we want to be there. So interesting when a man knows his need for Christ, how he will run after him. That aside, what we must consider here is the greatness of our Lord's compassion. And I want you to think of his own state. He and his men are weary, aren't they? They are weary. And what would most men do, right? What would most men do when there's a crowd that now starts to throng them and they are just basically haven't had any leisure. They are tired. What might you do if you saw these crowds come and they want more out of you? You might shoo them off saying, we are weary. Leave us be. But Jesus doesn't do that. And you think of Jesus as the son of God and you've seen his power before. He could have hid himself, couldn't he? He has hidden himself before when his enemies arose, but he did not. He could have blasted them with the storm that he quieted, and he could have pushed them all away so that they couldn't get any closer to him, but he did not. He could have placed a pillar of fire between himself and them, but he did not, even as wearied as he was. His heart was moved for them, and he puts aside his own weariness. And John John's gospel, it says that Jesus lifted his eyes to survey the multitudes coming before him. And Matthew and Mark says that when he surveyed them, he was moved with compassion towards them. This is our Lord, even in his own weariness, right? He's not even throwing himself a pity party. He's thinking about all of his people and he has compassion and is moved by them. Christian, what a savior you have. Weary, tired, hungering, and you think of the cross in that too, don't you? He's moved with compassion for you, believer. And this is what you must understand is the heart of God. 
This is the heart of God. You always, when you see Jesus, what you say is this. If God could hunger, if God could thirst, and if God could see that I were in need, right, and he was hungry and thirsty, have you ever asked yourself, oh, my soul, what would my God do for me? Here you see it. He would put down his own needs to tend to you, if such a thing were possible for God Almighty. But in Jesus Christ, you see the heart of God, that when the person of the Son of God can hunger and can thirst in the human nature, he puts aside his own thoughts of his own weariness to minister to his people. And of course, no better example of this is is shown than the cross. And what's our problem? As sinners, we sin against a good and perfect and loving God as this. And that's the thing that's astonishing, isn't it? That's what makes our sin even more vile, right? When you see the heart of God in, the, in Jesus Christ, when you see the f- glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord, moved with compassion and pity, that's what makes our sin even more heinous, isn't it? It's because we're not sinning against a despot or a tyrant. We are sinning in our sin against one who is perfect love, who is perfect goodness, who is perfect mercy. And this God is such love and goodness that he incarnates himself so he could suffer on the cross in the place of sinners who sin against his own person. It's astonishing. You know, there are many things about the Trinity and the hypostatic union that boggle the mind. But perhaps the reasons for the hypostatic union are the most boggling of all. And the hardest things to really wrap our mind around, not just the bare theology of it, but the purpose in it. To suffer in the human nature that God could do that to save sinners who hate him. It's remarkable. Now, as we think on the feeding of the 5,000 that will soon result, we must understand as well that his compassion arises from a deeper need when he surveyed them than mere hunger, than mere physical hunger, I should say. You know, such is our sinful condition, as I mentioned, that we gloss over what Jesus is truly concerned about. And we find ourselves making so often the same error in this text that the crowds will make later. But Mark 6, 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. And why? Because they were as sheep without a shepherd. This is it, friends. This is why he's moved with compassion first and foremost. It's not because they're hungry. Actually, they're not hungry yet. They're not hungry yet. But they were as sheep without having a shepherd. They were as sheep gone astray with no one to tend to them, no one to care for them. They were going astray because the appointed shepherds of Israel right, had all fleeced them and had all done the evils that Ezekiel prophesied of. And so these were sheep without a shepherd. And this moves the heart of our God. And we miss a more vital feeding that he gives them. And Mark conveys it. He says, after saying that they were as sheep not having a shepherd, Mark 6.34 says something profound. And how does, what, what is the action that is undertaken? And he began to teach them many things. How many have missed this in the feeding of the 5,000? That the actual primary feeding was not on bread, but on doctrine, on the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus set out in purpose to do. And later on, because they hunger, that he will feed their bodies. But where his compassion begins is preaching and teaching 
they need a true instruction. In Luke's account, our verse 11, we read that he spake unto them of the kingdom of God. Now we miss the point of the miracles like the multitudes did. And we don't often think of the teaching and preaching as being Jesus filling their souls, do we? Let's ask what he would have preached, though. What would he have preached about the kingdom? Because it actually ties into the text and its theme. How does Romans 14, 17 define the kingdom, if you remember it? The kingdom of God is not what? Meat and drink. Now, isn't that very interesting, as you think on the feeding of the 5,000? The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. This is where the compassion of the Lord is coming They need righteousness. They need an alien righteousness because they're all sinners. They need peace with God because the mind that is not in Christ is enmity with God. And they need joy. The joy of knowing their sins are forgiven in the Holy Ghost. They need this. This is the stuff of the kingdom. Our need is not first to seek the bread that perishes. Our first need is not for our empty stomachs to be filled. Our first need is for our empty soul to be filled with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus is always concerned that we have our first need, the righteousness of God freely given through faith in him and freely given as well. Just as freely given as the bread is, so too is the bread of life. So too is Jesus Christ himself. Now, He doesn't neglect to remember our secondary needs. No, we must not say that he's only concerned with the soul. That would be false too, wouldn't it? He's certainly concerned with our body as well. But we must remember first things first. In fact, in Matthew 6, 33, what does he say? Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is what he is doing here. He is preaching the kingdom that you would first seek it. And then what does he say about your food? And all these things will be added unto you. That This text is really in many ways an illustration of Matthew 6.33, isn't it? He first wants you to seek the kingdom, and then he will, he will, add, he will add what you need for your daily bread. And it's beautiful to see the consistency of the message of the word of God in this. But yet many come to the feeding of the 5,000 and completely forget that he was preaching of the kingdom. And the feeding of the bread is really a secondary thing that confirms that he who can multiply bread can also fill our soul. Now, Mark 6.34 tells us not only did Christ teach, and this is important too, but he taught them many things. This is also important because the word of God teaches us many things. Some men will say, I just want to hear about justification by faith. That's very important. And we try to bring something of the gospel into every sermon, into every text. But the Bible, this Bible teaches you a great many doctrines, friends. First, uh, Second Timothy 3 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's why we even have, like, for instance, in the afternoons, our topical series often on marriage and worship. You know, just look at this Bible, friends. 66 books. How many things Jesus has to teach to us. And his compassion is found in teaching many things, as was Paul's, right? When he said that he was free of the blood of all men, he says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. 
in Acts chapter 20. Jesus has something to say to you concerning every matter in your life. That's his compassion, friends, that you would not be a sheep gone astray because you've never thought that in this book you might find some guidance for your worship, some guidance for your family life, some guidance for your thoughts, some guidance for your business, some guidance for your friendships, some guidance even for your tongue. That's his compassion on you so that you would not stray from him. And so he has many things to teach you. Do you think he will leave his sheep without guidance in any vital area? No. So what is your duty and mine too? To pick up the book, look and read. And hear what he has to say. And not to go to the counselors of the world, but to open up what saith the Lord. He loves you, friends. And his compassion is found in giving you 66 books in the Bible. And never forget it. This book is meant to be an expression of his love, care, and compassion. And the minute you forget it is the minute you will despise it and the minute you will go astray. And so, the Lord has compassion on sheep without a shepherd. And that compassion is twofold. As we are both soul and body, Christ's compassion extends to both. It's shown by his preaching to the soul and his healing and feeding of the body. And so what you must do in this text, and we forget it, is you must perceive Jesus Christ as a Savior for the whole man. For all of you. Not just all of you as a multitude, not for just ye all, but for all of who you are. In every bit that needs saving, Jesus will save. This is why your salvation is not complete when your soul is translated into glory. But your salvation is complete when your body is raised and is united with your soul in the resurrection. His love, his care extends both soul and body believer. Never buy that Gnostic styled lie that he only cares about the soul. He certainly cares about the soul, but he also cares about your body, whatever condition it may be in. He cares about it. The Lord cares about it. Which is why in verse 12, he who had been tired, spending all day ministering to them, feeds them. Will you remember that? Is Jesus not the same yesterday, today, and forever? And so his compassion that is shown in this text for the whole man is the compassion he has for you even now in this moment. And so will you not just remember this miracle, but remember what Psalm 111 has been teaching us, that the miracle comes out of the heart of God for those who love him, for the whole man. And so with that to put before us Christ's compassion, let's consider in our second heading, Christ's means. Now, the disciples perceived the multitudes would need food. In verse 12, they tell Jesus, send the multitude away that they may go into the towns and country roundabout and lodge and get victuals, for we are here in a desert place. Now, As the world says, familiarity breeds contempt. And we've probably read this narrative many times. But do you begin to understand the problem with what they did? Who here understands what it is that they have done in this verse? Send the multitude away. Now, the more that I meditated on this verse, the more I felt I could preach a sermon or even a sermon series on it. So here's like four things for you to consider about what they did. The first issue is that they did not know, just as on the boat, remember their, their sinful thought, that Jesus cared. 
right? As though he was oblivious to the multitude's needs, right? Like, let, let me tell you, Jesus, I don't know if you understand this, but they're hungry now and they need to go and get food. Child of God, even if you have experienced his compassion before, just as the disciples did not too long before this, you are prone to slipping back into this thinking. Does the Lord care in this present situation? Is the Lord merciful? Does he know what I need? And will he give it to me? And you must put that thought away. The second issue is, and we have to skim over these things, but I hope these put some thoughts in your mind, is that they did not inquire with the Lord. They did not present the problem to him and inquire what he might have to say. They did not say, Master, the crowds are hungry. What shall we do to feed them? Right? They they did not even argue, right? And they ought to have argued something like this. Lord, we know you care for your people. How may we give them food? Instead, they tell him, what? Send them away, Lord. We're often so guilty of knowing better than the Lord, right? Our solution, they have a solution, and they inform the Lord of what that solution ought to be. And this is why we are often frustrated with God's providences, because we think we know what Jesus must do. That is the height of pride and arrogance, beloved. And we must instead wait on the Lord and inquire with him, even as Habakkuk did. I will see how he will chasten me for this. Third, I think you see their impiety in how they speak to the Lord. They say, send them away. They give him a commandment, right? You think of here's Jesus and they come up to him and they say, "Uh, master, send them away. Who is the master? Who is the disciple? Should they give him such commands? No. (laughs) And I think on this, ought we who are slow to take the master's commands issue any of our own to him? No. Again, this is a height of impiety. Fourth, they do not think that the Lord could feed these, even in a wilderness place. Like our forefathers, right? And this is the the astonishing thing. They... Our forefathers were guilty of this very same thing. Their forefathers were guilty of the very same thing. In fact, not only are we guilty of these things, but if we would read the Exodus, for instance, but God has given us a song to sing, showing us that our unbelief is found in that he cannot provide in a desert place. Psalm 78, 19 through 20. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. And that wasn't enough, right? Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? You are prone to forget it too, beloved. So you need to remember to sing Psalm 78. You think of how often, how often it was that the disciples must have sung this both in temple and synagogue. And they don't think that the Lord who quieted the storms and they ask, who is this man? Who is he that has power over the storms? And you know that they were getting the inkling in their mind. This is Jehovah in the flesh. And yet they're singing, can God provide bread? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And they don't think that Jesus could do this in the wilderness. This is why he brings him and them into a desert place to test him. And so given these four points, I said you could preach a whole sermon on this verse. Uh, I think in view of all of their impiety, I am just struck with the mediator's response. And you see his patience for us who are so faithless in so many ways and slow to believe. 
He doesn't roll his eyes at their impiety. He doesn't smack them down, whether physically or, or spiritually. He didn't glare at them. And in reading the Gospels, what you come away with is the patience of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's encouraged me with my own Lord's forbearance towards me, a sinner, but has also convicted me of my less than gracious dealings with others. The Lord is so patient and forbearing. He covers offenses against himself, his own person, his own kingship, against his own power in love. And as the shadow of the cross, as we considered last time, is looming more and more over Luke's gospel, you see the heart of Jesus that is going to set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Here, as he is covering offenses against himself. But then, his response, even though it is kind, is challenging. Verse 13, But he said unto them, Give ye them to eat. First of all, I think the Lord reminds us, not so subtly, who is in charge. Not you, but me. No, no, you don't tell me what to do. You go give them. I will tell you what to do. Go give them something to eat. Now, think though, if you were there, how challenging a commandment this is, right? Feed the multitude. There are 5,000 men there, but the crowd was much larger. Mark 6.21 says there were about 5,000 men beside women and children. And what was on hand? Five loaves, two fishes. And the master is telling you, go, give them something to eat. And they tell the Lord, we have no more but five loaves and fishes, except we should go and buy meat for all this people. And so here you are. You have a portion that cannot even satiate 12 hungry men, the disciples, much less feeding maybe 10 to 15,000 people or more. But, and I think on this, right? Think of how frustrated you might be. What am I going to do? How do I accomplish any of this? He has asked for the impossible. Why does he do that? Why does he ask for the impossible? That your faith would be in the power of God and not in yourself. He was testing him in that. In John 6, verse 5, we learn that Jesus asked Philip in this time, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? What was the Holy Ghost commentary in the next verse there in John 6? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. You know, Jesus isn't scrambling around. This is not some sort of, oh, what do we do? We have to feed these people. This is all part of the plan of Christ to prove and test his people. And what kind of testing was this, boys and girls? This is a test of faith where their faith is. He was waiting for faith's response. And you think of something like this, right? Lord, you've told us to, to feed these people, but there's no place to buy. But if it is, if it is thy will, O God, you can set a table in the wilderness. We believe that by faith. You can cause water to gush forth from stone. You can cause manna to pour out of heaven. You can readily feed 5,000. You can feed 5 billion or more. And faith's response would be something like, say the word, Lord, provide, and we will feed thy people through thy provision. This is the engagement that the Lord wants of his people. When something impossible comes before them in the word of God or in providence, faith says with Augustine, give what you command, O Lord, and then command what you will. Knowing it is not in us to fulfill the command, but it is in Christ. So we say, give what you command, O Lord. And then the beauty of that, right? What is the beauty of that? And this is why Augustine's words are so profound. 
Then if you are the one who gives whatever you command, then command whatever it is you will, because you are the one who will give the power to do it. And this is the beauty of knowing that the power rests in Christ and not ourselves. And this is the kind of trust and faith that the Lord is looking for, brethren. In so many ways, beloved, he is proving you. He is testing you when he speaks the word of God. Will you do what seems impossible in the face of it? Think of this, right? You know, how many people have been so crushed when they hear the words, love your enemies? That's impossible. I can't do it. It's not in me. That's the point. Or what if they, the Lord says, you need to forgive the one who has offended you freely and deeply when they come and ask for forgiveness, no matter how hard the matter was. How hard is it when he tells you, in your poverty, seek first the kingdom and my righteousness, and I will provide. And you say, that seems impossible. What is he doing? He is proving you. He is testing you. No matter how impossible the word, the command is, he is making you come to the end of yourself that your faith and hope would be in God. And I think we do poorly in our life because we don't remember that our God, you need to get this straight, is a testing God. He is a searching God. He is a trying God. Psalm 11.5 says this, The Lord trieth who? The righteous. Now, isn't that interesting? Why do you ask why the righteous seem to have so many trials and often miseries? Because the Lord tries the righteous, not the wicked. He tries his people and he will test you. He tested Abraham. He tests Abraham's seed. He even tested, tested the son of God. He will test you. He will test me to show whether our faith is in God or in ourselves or someplace else. And that is for our good. This is one of the most precious texts in all the Bible. Peter said that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And where does faith lead you? Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1, 7 and 8. Do not ever think something strange is happening to you, friends, when your faith is tried, believer. The end of your test is something glorious, and sometimes we need to long for it, that it will be greater praise to Christ and a greater love for him. That faith is strengthened in the one that you say more and more, though having not seen this Jesus, I love him all the more. As faith connects you to the Savior and faith is strengthened and what does faith feed on? It feeds on Jesus Christ and you love him all the more as faith is tested and tried. And so Jesus Christ set a table in the wilderness for his people, even as he did in the Exodus before. And that is a key part of this miracle to testify of what? That the prophet greater than Moses had come, Right? just as Moses prophesied himself in Deuteronomy 18. And that's another reason why the gospel writers capture this particular uh, miracle. It's to show the world and the Jews particularly that the one greater than Moses is here. Boys and girls, you remember under Moses' ministry, God gave his people manna from heaven to sustain them. 
But as Jesus will say in John chapter 6, right? Moses didn't give the manna. God did. God did. But in the feeding of the 5,000 then, what is Jesus revealing? One greater than Moses is here, right? That the divine son of God, the creator himself who can create bread and multiply bread unlike Moses has come into the world. And this is who the people of God were waiting for and he is now here. He is revealing himself in a powerful and profound way. So he multiplies the the provision in verse 16. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and break and gave to the disciples to set before the multitude. Now there's something in the action and I, I wish I could preach on this, but he there's something of the action of looking up to heaven that is important for us, right? He is signifying where your provision comes from, believer. He looks into heaven saying that this comes from the hand of God, right? He doesn't look at the fields. He, he looks into heaven saying, regardless of how this got here, and of course that he's going to multiply the bread, showing it directly, but all of our provision comes from heaven, from the bounty and hand of God. And you can't forget that. The Savior himself uh, wouldn't let us forgive it, forget it. He, he shows us that uh, the hand of God whose throne is in heaven is where all these things come from. And the people eat of the food that is multiplied and had their fill. Verse 17, they did eat and were all filled and there was taken up of fragments that remained to them 12 baskets. Now out of these very meager rations, then five loaves and two fishes, he was able to multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply until thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people were able to eat. Now, boys and girls, for your faith, this is a miracle impossible to cheat. There is absolutely no way that this could be a cheat. It's impossible to fake They're in a desolate place. The disciples themselves said it. There's no place to get food. You can't sort of hide vast provisions anywhere. You can't even cart it around with 12 men. In front of, and this miracle is done not just in front of his 12, right? Like some cult leaders would do, maybe him and a couple of his friends. But in front of thousands of men, women, and children, you have, in other words, a trustworthy Savior. Testified of by many witnesses, beloved. And you need to take heart in that, boys and girls, especially as the world will challenge your faith. You don't serve a a man who is myth. You serve the true and living God who has come into the world to save sinners, even the chief. Now, I don't think we can get past this without also seeing the Lord delights to use means, right? He doesn't just sort um, sort of beam down, so to speak, bread into every lap. He sends his men out to give the food, give ye them to eat. And so what we have to recognize is that the Lord feeds his lambs through men like gospel ministers. You know, after he was resurrected, and I want you to always, and I take heart in this, well, I take heart, I, I'm challenged by this rather. Um, when we look at the heart of God, we look at the heart of Jesus, and we look at why he does anything, we are to ponder his heart as we heard in Psalm 111. Now, after his resurrection, before he departs into heaven, what did he ask Peter? Lovest thou me? Right? He asked Peter, do you love me? And when Peter says, thou knowest I love thee, what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Beloved, it's the compassion of the Lord, isn't it? 
that continues to extend to this day. It did not evaporate when he ascended into heaven, did it? His compassion sends under shepherds to feed his lambs. And you need to acknowledge that, beloved, that he uses men who love him to feed you because he loves you. And so he will have men who love him feed his lambs. And so you must acknowledge that every time the word of God is opened and a gospel minister who is a true minister of the gospel, who has a heart for the people of God, opens up the scriptures, it is Jesus feeding you through that means. Now, on the other hand, there is something here for ministers to take note of, I think, and it's also an encouragement for the lay people. You know, when a minister sees the people of God going astray, And they survey multitudes, right? Seeing malnourished souls crushed under many burdens, griefs almost inexpressible, uh, which lead to despondency in the sheep, backsliders on the road to perdition, those covenant children running away from the Lord, uh, marriages broken, and you see so many unbelieving hearts out in the world yet to be converted. They hear the Lord's command that tests them. He says, go into the highways and hedges. Go, heal, and conquer hearts by my spirit. Reclaim the wandering sheep. Leave the 99 to search out the one. Give them the balm of Gilead. And you go, how? How? It seems rather impossible. And ministers might even say and think in their hearts, send them elsewhere, Lord. I can't do it. We have no more than a few words in this book. Send them away. Send them someplace else. But he is proving He is testing. He is saying, feed my lambs on the word of God. And what does Isaiah 55 promise concerning the word that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater? So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. As soon as ministers, as soon as pastors forget this, as soon as elders forget this, and they forget that these spirit-filled words on the page, and they actually not just forget that they can fill, but if they start believing in their unbelief, it cannot fill the people of God. What will they do? They will send them off to feed on dung instead. They will send them off to feed them on philosophy, politics, and platitudes. They will have them feed on amusements. They will feed them anything and everything but what truly fills the hungry soul. Because their unbelief is exposed like the original disciples that Jesus Christ cannot feed his people through these words. Our ministry must be defined by this divine book. And you who are seated before the word of God even now, your challenge, beloved, is to believe that this word, this word, along with prayer and the sacraments, are sufficient to fill your hungry soul, and it will multiply in your soul. It will multiply and multiply, overflowing to the point that there are fragments left over that you cannot even imbibe. How many times have you gone to the word of God and you said, I am so full, and there there is more? That's what this word is. A grave misstep for you would be to doubt that and clamor for something more than this. Beloved, it is no exaggeration to say that many of us have hungry souls. All of us ought to have hungry souls. But the question you have to ask yourself is, what am I filling my hungry soul with? The grave danger for the hungry soul is to be filled with spiritual junk food, isn't it? To seek the emptiness of our soul, to seek its filling, right? In what? Media, possessions, men, women, alcohol, drugs, and so on. But those things will not ever, ever nourish your soul. 
Boys and girls, spiritually, they're the equivalent of a Twinkie and not like whole grain bread and the fish here in the the text. Which is why Isaiah 55, which I cited, also asks, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Have you ever thought that there is a way to labor that will never satisfy you? Hearken diligently unto me. What does that mean? It means, boys and girls, listen to me. Listen to me and eat ye that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. What is it you are filling your souls with, beloved? What do you reach for even when it is empty? Do you go to the pantry to get food? Do you go to liquor? Do you go to your phone? Do you go to a man or a woman? Where do you go? Are you spending money for that which is not the bread that you truly need? But the Lord says, hearken diligently to me in my word, which is true bread. Eat what is good. There's a sermon on spiritual junk food, right? Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in what? Fatness. Something stored up, not just for this present hour, but even for the hour to come when I need it. That's what true food does. And that's the distinction between junk food, which lasts for 10 seconds, and then you reach again for emptiness. But the word of God becomes like fat. There is fatness to be found when the word sends you by the Holy Ghost to Jesus to be filled. Search ye the scriptures, he said, for these are they that testify of me. Which is where we end with our final heading, Christ's filling. So this problem... Not realizing what we truly need, it greatly plagues us as God's people. After the Lord fed the 5,000, the crowds followed him. And this is not noted here in Luke. You have to really pick up John chapter 6 to see it more clearly. But what is it that the crowds followed him for? They saw in him sort of a magic bread and fish dispenser, right? This is why they're following him. They want to have bread and fish. What they did not want is what he came to give them, which is himself. In John 6, 26 and 27, we find a revelation of that. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. Now, where have you heard that before? Isaiah 55. But for that meat which endureth unto what? Everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Even so, they they press him further for physical bread in John 6.31. Now I want you to remember, they are willfully ignoring what he said. I'll get to that in a minute. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They still don't get it. They still don't understand the glory of what he had spoken. Do you notice the price that they put on everlasting life? They find it less important than bread. I, I don't think we recognize that very much, right? Jesus is offering freely to them, feast on me, the bread that will lead to everlasting life. And they don't even think how marvelous that is. And they said, give me bread. Give me bread instead so that we would be filled. Do you understand how askew we are? Right, One is so utterly glorious 
that if we looked at it rightly, we would, we would ponder and inquire, how is it possible we would be arrested by this idea of eternal life freely given in Jesus Christ, that we may feast on him. And we would look at the bread and go, okay, well, I guess when I'm hungry, I'll pick up bread somewhere. But instead, we completely reverse the order. And we have no care. We have no care, right? I, I think for many of us, it's the same way. Life everlasting is less important than our temporal provision. But what is the more important provision to lay hold of? Is it not everlasting life? Do you see, beloved, the point of this is simply this. It's a greater, there's a greater teaching here that we are prone to poorly value the things that really matter. The greatest gifts of all that Christ has come to give us are despised, but we clamor for mere bread. That's how askew things are. We have great riches and treasures in Christ. And instead, we are like children who just want to have a lollipop. That's what we are. Our great need, beloved, is not bread for our stomach, but the bread that leads to everlasting life. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, what? I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You need this bread, beloved. You need Christ. I need Christ to fill us more than anything else. If you come to him for this, beloved, what he says is, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. Well, you say, Pastor, I have been hungry and I have thirsted at times. But the thing is, the kind of hunger and thirst that he's speaking of is the greater hunger and the greater thirst, which is for what? For righteousness, right? What does that blessed beatitude say? Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? For they shall be filled. Now here you can understand how. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of life. This is the true hunger. This is the true thirst. And they should have known it, friends. Because Jesus preached the kingdom, and this is why we're so dull, isn't it? Jesus preached the kingdom before he fed them with bread. He preached that the kingdom is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And do we not forget it quickly ourselves, that this is what our soul needs? Did you come into the public meeting today saying, what I need most of all, O God, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost? Is this the notion we have in our heart? Or is our heart so often carried away by carnal things? Without seeing, yes, the utter poverty of your soul, you will not come in the first place to Christ for salvation. Right? But it doesn't end there. Start with salvation. Until you see that there is no righteousness in you at all, as Paul said, and we must have this mind, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, you will not come to Jesus to have your soul filled. What are your two paths? Your only two paths are these. First is self-righteousness, a kind of fooling of yourself. The second is uh, despondency. Those are it. You're either going to be self-righteous and say, I'm making it, I am filled, even though your conscience is screaming against you and you're oblivious to your soul's hunger. And uh, you otherwise might say, well, I, I am, I am pitiful. I am um, someone who needs uh, to be filled and I don't know how to get it. It's not going to be in me, and you will despair. The remedy to both is what? Go to Jesus. Believer, if you are despondent and you have come to the Lord, you need to go to Jesus. When your soul hungers, and it hung, you know, you think about this. Our soul is hungry every day. 
though we are very good at, at putting it away, right? Our body hungers every day and we are prone to feed it. Uh, not many of us go days without eating, I suspect. Yet so often our soul is hungry and we neglect to feed it. And, and what is going to happen, and as I prayed earlier, temptations and trials more readily come to the hungry soul because it isn't fat on the word and on Christ. You know, a man whose body hungers, remember this, a man whose body hungers is tempted to steal, or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Proverbs 30, verse 9. How much more so a hungry soul that is not filled on the fatness of Christ. It is tempted to sin in great ways, to fill its aching, right? And it doesn't reach for Christ. If it's been away from Christ, it reaches for all the things of the world and for sin. And so believer, here is your glory is to remember this, that in Christ you can be filled and you can be fat and you will never hunger and you will never thirst if you're constantly going to him. When you lack righteousness, what are you to do? You are to go to Jesus to be filled. When you need cleansing, where do you go? You go to Jesus to be cleansed. When you need strength, where do you go? You go to Jesus to be filled. When you need faith itself, right, you go to Christ. And even after you sin, you go to Jesus Because to whom else can you go, beloved? Who else is going to fill you? Who else is going to remove the empty, gnawing hunger that sin has put in your belly spiritually and have every spot and stain of that sin cleansed away? This is in many ways a simple sermon. Our text is very simple and our faith is also very simple to which I constantly say praise God. There are no deep mystical pathways we have to unlock, beloved, but we must remember the things we are prone to forget. And that's 99% of the ministry is to remember Jesus simply saying, come unto me, be filled with me, be filled totally by me. And so thank God that in Christ you will never want for righteousness, beloved. Isn't that a glorious thought? I will never hunger and thirst for righteousness because Jesus will fill me clothed with his righteousness and the promise he will feed me on his own self as in John 15. And so when famished, you must remember Christ is your all in all who will feed you. When weary, what do you do? You take up the imperative of Hebrews 12. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking where? Looking at the pantry, the bread pantry? No, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When you look at yourself, and you have to do this, and you find the soul's hunger, as McShane said, take ten looks to Jesus to be filled. Plead with him. Fill me, Lord, as you have promised. Patch the holes in my hungry soul and fill me. Take up the promised believer of John 6. Pray, thou hast said, O God, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, isn't that a promise to take to the Lord? Plead, help thou mine unbelief. Run to him and be assured he will do it. And consider how extravagant our Lord's miracle was in the baskets of leftover fragments. What do they signify for you spiritually? But there is more in Christ that can ever fill you. There is more in him that can ever fill you. For all eternity, he will fill you and you will never be hungry. You will be satiated forever. In heaven, there is no hunger because our soul will directly delight in Christ's fatness. 
Even today, for this time, recall Ephesians 3, 17 through 21, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with what? All the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Oh, isn't that a challenge when you think of the disciples and their unbelief? Who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Why can you be filled by Jesus? Because he is God. And he cannot, uh, and, and you ask your soul, O soul, can he not fill us? Can he not fill me exceeding abundantly above all that I ask or think? And you say, yes and amen. Well, I'm come today here as a minister of Christ and my commission is in my ordination, give you something to eat. And I have no bread or fishes to give you today, but what I have I give to you, which is the word of God and Jesus Christ, the bread of life found in it. You are to take and eat of Christ without price, without charge, freely receive him by faith, beloved, and he will fill you. Why did you come here today? I'll ask the question again. Why are you present before Jesus right now? Did you come hungry? Did you come thirsting? Did you come to be filled with bread from heaven? If so, praise God, he is filling you if you are receiving him by faith now. You need to come to Jesus to be filled daily. Open your mouth wide spiritually. Open your hands wide and take of him. Our problem is not only do we not know that we need him as the bread of life, it's also that we do not come as beggars before the Lord and say, fill me, O God. How often do you do it? Don't be surprised if your soul is aching and is hungry today. We don't open our mouths wide with our hands open, coming hungry for Christ. Come hungry, my friends. That's his exhortation. Come hungry, and he will fill you with himself. Don't pretend you are full when you are not full. Don't pretend you are satisfied when you are not satisfied. Come hungry as you are hungry. And he has shown you, beloved, he can set you a table in whatever wilderness you find yourself in. Whatever miry pit you might be mired in, he can set a table there. His table is not just set. Think of the glory of this, of what we have heard in the word of God. His table is not just set in Eden. It's not just set in heaven. It is set in desert places as well. Even the place your soul might be today. And he especially has compassion on you who are hungry and thirsty, sinful and miserable. You saw it in the text. Be not faithless, but believing. There is nothing else I can really give you but Christ, free for the taking. So take him now and take him as your all in all. Take him as your righteousness. Take him as your sanctification. Take him as your wisdom. Take him as your strength. Take him as your sustenance. He says, I am the bread of life. Take him as your life. He is your life. And where is your life hid? It's hid with Christ above where no man can take it from you. Make him your life, live your life feeding on him and for him, and know that he that comes to Jesus will never worry about hungering or thirsting for righteousness, and you will stand before God eternally blessed because of that.
Praise the Lord for that. Amen. May God bless our meditation on the bread of life. Please stand for prayer if able.